Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in July 2022. Today's episode is all about some topics in applied ethics. We're going to be thinking about issues around abortion and about euthanasia and issues around how we should think about the idea of fictional and simulated killings, such as one finds in plays or video games. We'll also we see what else we get onto, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Michael Platt, who teaches at Harvey Grammar School in Folkestone. Hi, Michael. Hi, Simon. Good to be here. And we've got Dan McKee, who's a philosopher and writer at Philosophy Unleashed. Hi, Dan. Hi, Simon and everyone else. And joining us, we've got Beth McIntosh, who's a visiting research and logic exchange fellow at the University of Winchester and also head of philosophy and religious studies at Winchester College. Hi, Beth. Hi, great to be here. Uh, great to have all three of you. Okay, so we're going to talk about a range of issues in applied ethics today, and it's fair to say that they are controversial. So we'll try to deal with these issues as sensitively as we can. Um, if students are listening, we hope you find this episode stimulating and useful, and I hope you've been used to discussing these issues already at school. Um, the topic of abortion appears on the edXL A-level spec. Uh, euthanasia appears on both edXL and on the OCR A-level specification. And we've got a different sort of topic, simulated killing, such as one finds in plays and films, which appears on the AQA spec. And they're different issues, abortion, euthanasia, and simulated killing. But we hope we're going to find some interesting links between them all. Okay, so to get us going, let's think about the general issues in play and think about one issue in particular, personhood, which might be something that connects all of these issues together. So, um, Beth, do you want to uh, start things for us and give us some idea about what personhood is and the different ways we could think about it and how we can bring that to bear into various topics? Sure, absolutely. So I think it would be fair to say that um, ethical concerns about abortion and euthanasia and these ethical issues at the beginning and the end of life remain some of the most contested debates of our age. I think it's quite interesting that if you read moral philosophers' work in the, say, 1960s, 1970s, there was this kind of hope that philosophers might lead these medical ethical debates to some sort of consensus. But that's been unrealized, I think would be fair to say. So there's lots of reasons why those medical ethical debates about abortion and euthanasia are so incredibly contested. And I think one of the main reasons and, and the central issue at the heart of this is that of this contested debate is that there is a contested concept at the heart of this debate. So we've got this contested concept of the person. And we could completely have a podcast just on personhood and talk about this remarkable history of the term person. Um, and Amelie Rorty and Alistair McIntyre have talked about, about that remarkable history. But we've got this contested concept of the person. Um, W.B. Galley wrote about essentially contested concepts. So we've got this really contested concept. And this concept has led to a real impasse or deadlock, really, within the debate so the pursuit or the determination of personhood is really controversial because it's about defining who or what is a person and when a person begins or ceases to exist. It's all about thinking about where do we fix the boundaries at the beginning and the end of life. And it's saying who's in and who's out in terms of moral status and protect moral protection. 
So what's happened is we've got these competing conceptions of personhood and each one has pursued specific individual qualities that ground a being's claim to having a morally significant life. And so when philosophers have used the term person, and this is why it's controversial, is because they've been using it to make a distinction between being alive biologically and having a life that's worthy of, um, that matters morally and is worthy of respect. So we can talk about the different positions throughout the podcast, um, but it might just be worth giving a little bit of an overview of the positions. So um, the philosopher David Wiggins wrote this really famous paper called um, The Person as an Object of Science, a Subject of Experience, and as a Locus of Value. And what he's doing and saying in that paper is that philosophers have tried to hold together in, a, in one focus or focused in on one of these areas or one of these aspects of personhood. So one area you could look at or one approach you could take is that you could see the person as an object of science, a kind of biological being, a being that you look through an anatomical or neurophysiological lens. And these positions are called biological or animalist accounts of personhood. And that's, they've been quite stunningly successful, but there's big problems with that position. You've also got this approach that sees the person as a subject of consciousness that goes way back to Lucretius and this idea of a conscious being, a psychological being. This has been linked to Locke as well, this kind of psychological or functionalist account of the person. And there are loads of other positions as well, but there's also this idea that what we're trying to do is pinpoint moral attributes. An area we'd also want to tie in for this podcast is what's referred to or would be seen as the theological account of personhood. And that's got roots um, with the work of Boethius, who talked about the person as an individual substance of rational nature. But this position is obviously seeing the human being as made in God's image and as the pinnacle of God's creative process. And so that's what's giving the human being inherent dignity. So we've got all these um, different conceptions of personhood. And if you think and link this to the abortion debate or the euthanasia debate, these are areas where the demarcation between the human being and the person is cited. So I think the importance of personhood is pretty clear here in that if you bestow personhood at a certain stage from conception onwards, you are endowing the zygote or the fetus with certain levels of protection And at the other end of the scale, you're thinking about the end of life and ethical issues and this whole issue of whether personhood in some way can be lost because you no no longer possess certain capacities. So that's showing kind of the, the real life aspect to this discussion, this conceptual discussion about what the person is. And obviously, for the for the students studying this, um, you can bring in your ethical theories as well, because each ethical theory is going to have a very particular approach to the moral agent or the person at the heart of the um, at the heart of their theory or their prism, if you like. Because if you're a utilitarian, you're going to focus on sentience, but you're also going to need a high level of rationality to um, do some of the things the utilitarian assumes you can do. For Kantian, for the Kantian, it's about rationality. And for the virtue ethicist, you've got a more kind of holistic approach, which would hold together kind of our animal status, but also would see the role for rationality and would see that we're cultural and social beings as well. And that would enhance or help us to understand what the person is. So really important to think about what what it is that makes 
makes the human being um, a person to get this kind of conceptual work done first. And of course, there are some philosophers that say that we're getting too bogged down in this kind of personhood debate and the the, the idea of the person is problematic. But it's really at the heart, I think, of these ethical debates at the beginning and end of life. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much for that, Beth. It's a really good scene setter. Dan, Michael, do you want to come in on any of uh, any of that? Yeah, I I like the idea of personhood. I think it's a really important idea, but I also think it shows kind of the problems with the concept of, of personhood as a solution to these problems. Because what people are sort of doing is looking at the world and go, "Well, there are some things that we care about. What happens to them?" And there are some things we don't care about. And in some cases, it's very obvious. So objects that are, you know, not conscious or, you know, things that we every day, like the the ground we walk on, we never really get concerned about the the potential pain it's in and things like that. And persons allows us to sort of make a distinction as to why we don't, because the ground isn't a person, it's it's just maybe an object. And then there's this problem, uh, as you talked about with the Wiggins paper, where that is also true of some living things, where... We, as we've talked about in the episode on, on animal ethics, you know, there are some living things that maybe we shouldn't care about in the same way that we care about other things. Why? Well, because a plant or a rabbit or a cow is not a person in the way that a human is. And then you've got these problems with, well, which humans count as persons and when do they count as persons? And I think one of the problems that arise when you start going, well, this is what a person is and this is why we should care about them is that that's a a way of showing why we should care about them morally. But even if you get to that definition, you're quite happy with what a person is, that doesn't necessarily say, and you therefore shall not be able to kill them, because maybe you can still kill persons. And I think what we'll look at as we look at this, and what we've already seen in some previous episodes on other ethical issues, is sometimes it's okay to kill people, persons, in different contexts, you might argue. So even once you've you've really honed in on going, this is what a person is, we now know it. And even if you can say a fetus is a person or an embryo is a person, a zygote is a person or a person at the end of their life who is, you know, in a vegetative state is a person that still doesn't necessarily give us an answer to. And so are we allowed to kill them or not? So it's a really useful thing. And it's, it maybe centers why we have this conversation about it in a way that we don't, you know, if, if my chair breaks me and my wife don't have a big discussion about whether we should put it out of its misery before we put it in the uh, in the skip. Or, you know, if we get the flat pack chair from Ikea and decide, actually, we're not going to make this one. We started making it and then we just threw it all in the bin. We don't really care about ending the potential chair too early, but we do about persons. So there's a definitely something important about it, but it doesn't necessarily solve our problems. Okay, that's really helpful. Dan, so so students, so we've had we had this big scene setter about idea of persons, but as we'll see, just because we've even if we've got a really great definition of personhood that we'd all agree on, and we're far from getting that, that may help, but it won't determine what we say about issues such as abortion or, or euthanasia. Uh, Michael, do you want to add anything to to what we've been saying so far? Uh, no, I've I've learned a lot already. I thought I'd uh, make that clear, but no, I think. I think the grounding is important and I think it brings us to bigger questions in ethics in that I suppose the question is, is it possible to ground personhood in anything? And if it is, great. But if it's not, you've still got decisions to make and you still have to make those decisions. Like you might not be able to ground personhood in anything, but you've still got a pregnancy that someone might not want to carry to term. Uh, You might have someone requesting to die. Um, And ultimately, it's a decision about um, whether you have to make 
pragmatic decisions regarding end of life or whether you make those idealistic decisions and whether you know you can be correct in the decision if there is a correct answer ultimately and that's I think something for students to consider on all ethical issues really but this one in particular. Great okay thank you all three of you okay so then let's move on then to think about the issue of abortion which occupies for the rest of this segment. Does, so does someone want to lay out in general what the broad question or broad issues are with abortion and then what whilst bearing in mind what we've just said about about personhood? Yeah I'd be happy to do that Simon if you'd like. Um, I think if I start with the link to personhood in that what's happened in the abortion debate linked to personhood is that we've got this sense of uh, a problem really in that you've got a, a sort of a hermeneutic circle in that you've got people defining personhood in a way that might link to the particular conclusion they wish to draw. And so if you take a position on personhood that suggests that life is life from the moment of conception, you have created or you've given um, a sort of a very full level of protection to, to, the, to the zygote, to the fetus, and therefore abortion is is wrong. If you take a very different approach to personhood and you take a, a more gradualist position and you say, look, there isn't a sort of set point at which we have a morally uh, significant life or a life worthy of moral protection, you've given yourself some room there. But along that process or that gradualist position, you're going to maybe pinpoint a particular position at which it is a moral problem. And you've also got those people that want to um, maybe put a very a late stage moral status on on the developing fetus and go up to birth or even beyond in some sort of slightly controversial positions people have taken. So it is quite important within the abortion debate to be aware of this, I think, problematic hermeneutic circle in that people often have a kind of end point or conclusion in mind when they are defining the person. I don't disagree, it can be useful, but I think that is something that is occurring within the abortion debate. But yes, we've got a range of positions there, haven't we, based on when you might see life as having moral status from conception to birth, and even these positions that have said, that have um, talked about infanticide, which are very problematic. But I think it's worth thinking about whether um, abortion could ever be seen as morally right or morally wrong or whether whether, whether there's a sort of level of neutrality there as well. Okay, thanks. Uh, Dan, Michael, do you want to pick up the story with any further points? One of the, the big things with abortion ethics is the sort of, once you decide whether or not the thing growing is a person or not, you're doing that, um, as Beth has said, usually because you've got some sort of end point in mind. But that's because you often haven't decided that you want this thing to be growing in you in the first place. And I think that's a really important thing to sort of bear in mind here. Um, you know, we know that pregnancy happens through sex. Not everyone knows that. So some people already have sex without knowing that that could result in pregnancy. So some pregnancies are a unexpected uh, mystery. Some pregnancies... Um, even if you know that you, for whatever reason, maybe think that it's unlikely that you're going to get pregnant in this particular situation. So you didn't want it like that. There's other people who obviously get pregnant through sort of unconsensual rape and things like that, who did not choose specifically to even gamble to potentially get pregnant. Then there's people who make an active choice to choose to have sex, but, but not get pregnant by using contraception and the contraception might fail. And so there's all these issues around the actual 
how how the whether it's a person or not thing starts to be there in the first place and where it is is a woman's body and it's her body and this thing is parasitical to her body it is nourishing itself from her and entirely reliant on her so there is a sort of important thing about personhood here to say the the fetus the embryo the the baby whatever you want to call it is not uh, the only person involved and there's a really important other person who the life is dependent on that we seem to sort of need to think about when we're considering the, the rights of life for this potential person and the right sometimes of life of the person who's the mother who would who'd carry the, the baby to term or the right to autonomy to, to choose what to do with their body, the right to have uh, liberation from a child that they don't want to have. And then uh, if you really want to go down the line as well, there is also the uh, whoever is the sperm person involved, whether it's a sperm donor, the father, that there's someone else who, in theory, if it is a person, it's their child and it's not their body that it's growing and it's not their body it's dependent on. But if it's a person and it's their child, do they have any sort of claims to it morally as well to sort of make it make a case? So there's this very complex combination of things going on in all discussions around around abortion uh, ethics. The reason people are so desperate to see, you know, is it right, is it wrong, is because it's it's often a thing that just is the only solution to something quite terrible or unwanted or, you know, a huge life-changing thing, that there is this solution there. And if it's okay, then there's, you know, problem solved. But if it's a huge moral wrong, then it's not a solution. And people really want it to be a solution. So that's why I think people are very worried about getting it right, getting it wrong. And then there's, I think, from that, this this sort of bigger issue that really needs to be mentioned of potential, you know, oppression of women in society. And the idea that because it is something that historically is connected to, you know, a child being born, that could be considered lineage in a family and heir in a family and the idea of in a marriage women being property and sex only happening in marriage as part of this sort of property transaction that there is this idea that you know that child is someone's and therefore the woman shouldn't get to choose what what they do with it because it is the the father's you know property in some in some way and that's a really troubling thing because i think a lot of our ethical conversations today in 2022 are informed by this historical sort of patriarchal oppression that makes this issue feel like something we can just sort of chat about in philosophy classes you know it's on most specifications like it's just this big ethical issue and maybe it's only a big ethical issue because we have this thing that really affects women in a very specific way and gives them an autonomy over their body that historically they've not been allowed to have and so some of the ethical issues might be ways of controlling choices rather than legitimate ethical issues. You know, we don't have these issues over removing cancer cells and things like that. Yes, because they're not persons, but then the question of why these cells are persons is maybe wrapped up in political, ideological, theological ideas as well as ethical ones. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, just a a quick comment from me and then I'll bring uh, Michael and Beth back in. Yeah, so as you were talking, in fact, well, as, as Beth was talking, I was thinking the other big issue is the is the moral come political one you know which you've just ended with and i mean you talked about you know that that whole background and the patriarchal society which i think is is fair and gives an insight into it i mean i, I think that the, another way to, to frame it is just the relationship between the public and the private right so i mean i think it's probably legitimate that states 
have some say about what's going on with living human beings, right, or living persons, and then that gets us straight into well, why, why these particular cells, why this sort of zygote rather than all of those. I think that's that's just about where exactly we draw the boundary between the public and the private. I think is a very 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 interesting one. Um, so actually, I suppose can I just ask a. Uh, Michael, do you want to come in on this? Because I've got a, I've got a question that's buzzing around my head for all of you as, as teachers. Just a couple of things that um, I thought I'd, I'd want to flesh out a little bit because this is not this isn't obviously a criticism, but I can imagine someone who is pro life listening to this and hearing things like parasitic relation uh, parasitic relationship, and just because you are a person doesn't necessarily mean that we cannot take the life of a person. And I think just to clarify those. I suppose what we mean by a, a parasitic relationship is even if you, and, and it kind of links the two together is even if you have even if you are a person and we accept that you are a life, it doesn't necessarily follow that you have a right to rely on someone else to give you that life or to sustain that life. So I would consider myself to be a person. Hopefully you do, too. But I wouldn't necessarily have the moral my 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 life doesn't have the moral status to supersede or take anything from your life so if i need a kidney i'm not entitled to any of your kidneys against your will or consent and i guess i suppose those those two issues i just thought were just needed a little bit more flesh on the bones of those i think yeah great that, that's really helpful michael yeah so there's i mean it goes back to how beth introduced it and then dan was talking a while ago about personhood so there's one thing to define personhood but then there's dependency i mean that's the word you didn't use but that might be a, a more neutral word than than parasitic and then just you know and, and that that example of of a kidney is is a is a very useful one uh, and indeed there's all sorts of other sorts of killing or letting die when people are persons which the law uh, upholds so you know there's defensive killing when someone's attacking you for example that's that's an obvious obvious one um, so, so a question from me then for, for you as teachers, I mean, certainly uh, Beth and Michael, because you will be teaching this regularly because of the specifications you, you, you teach to. So when you're teaching abortion, do you try to teach it just as, a, as an ethical issue or do you get onto these political issues as, as well? I'm just interested because the specifications don't kind of go into that. I'm just wondering where the students want to take it um, and where you take it. So I, I teach in an all-boys school, which is a I suppose, a, a, an, an interesting situation in which to teach abortion because I always have to draw attention to the fact that we are a group of boys discussing this issue. So I can't really get away from that political dimension. And we kind of do have a conversation about to what extent are we free to express our views on this? To what extent are our views valid? And we have a debate about the validity of our opinions with obviously uh, women not being present in the room. Um, and I can't really get away from the politics of that, I suppose. So I always try and draw attention to it because I think it's important to know where we're having these conversations and who is absent from the conversations as well. Yeah, so I'm in quite a unique position in that I have taught abortion in secondary schools and colleges for many years. I'm actually with the AQA at Winchester College now, but I have I teach abortion at the um, at the university. I think it's really hard not to bring in the political because I think, and this gets back to some points we've been making already, I think, unfortunately, the abortion debate has become a rights issue. It's become a kind of set of um, the morality of abortion being seen as first and foremost a sort of rights debate where one competing right would triumph, so the rights of the mother being seen over the rights of the 
infant. And I think that's a really unhealthy demarcation. I think Marianne Warren talks about this brilliantly and says this is not a particularly healthy way to approach this debate. It's very hard not to bring in the political because that's how it's being positioned. And that's how students are getting access to that in the media. I think what our job to do is and what I see as my job, and I'm very interested in this sort of area, is that I think that I think that's a problem. I think because of that sphere and that access to that sphere that they're getting, I think unfortunately, the writing around abortion has painted this really um, sort of abstract public setting for abortion, whereas in fact, we should be doing far more to root it into the lives of the individuals and the communities and the cultural settings that abortion happens within. So you can't talk about this or you can't talk about an abortion without something happening to the woman and something and that woman is in a relationship and she's in a context so I I actually think it's quite hard to avoid and if anything we should be trying to make a bit of a, of a kind of um yeah a broadening out of the issue really and making it a little bit more about um cultural and um, contextual settings. Yeah I'd also say I don't teach at A-level anymore but we did in the old um, religious studies uh, A-level used to do and still in the GCSE and certainly in the religious studies context, um, it's really important to talk about the political because a big dispute comes on what religious beliefs are about personhood or insolment or however you want to frame it. But that and the clash between what a belief might be and what the law might say. And to to sort of explain this idea of um, you might believe life begins at conception or you might believe life begins when the heart beats or whatever it is, but this is why the law might have picked this particular point at making legislation around it, because it satisfies various other sort of more pluralistic ideas or, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't force certain situations that are, you know, unthinkable to, to have to happen because not everyone has those same religious beliefs. So I think it is one of those issues where, as Beth says, it's been very polarised in society anyway, and it's become very politicised. But it's it's hard to maintain a sort of a moral-only conversation about it because eventually there's got to be some legislation, as, as you said, Simon, where the, the state makes an intervention in when you can and can't get involved with, with killing persons. So it's really important that whatever the moral position is becomes sort of translated into law in some way. And the fact that it, what has been translated into law doesn't satisfy some people's moral views leads to some of this conflict so you end up with that political discussion and then there's things like on the specification they use terms like pro-life and pro-choice which are hugely you know political statements they're not they're not factual statements you know they're they're forms of propaganda and activism so they're even built into our regular day-to-day discussion about abortion you sort of end up having to address it because it's it's really hard to, to, to disentangle it and and as Beth says maybe we shouldn't disentangle it because you end up not really able to talk about it meaningfully but maybe we should be able to focus more because i think even the most hardline whether it's moral religious whatever belief about when life begins and when it doesn't and what you think about abortion often changes in in case studies for individuals when something happens in their own family um whether it's their partner or their child or something and there's a there's a reasonable case in their mind for abortion suddenly the sort of strict rules of ethics that say this is always wrong no matter what, bend a little. And it becomes, well, actually, in this case, because I know them or because I understand the situation. And there's a case there for like ethics being contextual and, and, and how we make decisions. And can we have, if we are going to legislate, and that's why it becomes political, can you actually make 
legislation that's that's you know black and white this is when abortion can and can't happen or does legislation have to be incredibly flexible and open to all these nuances uh thanks michael yeah i just thought coming in on that as well i think uh, there's been a couple of really interesting podcasts. I think Slate did one recently and oh, the journalist guy, and I've forgotten his name, but he'll come to me, uh, did one. And I think... Was the journalist John Ronson? That's the one, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, it was really good. Even the religious views on abortion have been intertwined with politics. So the political attitude in America and the evangelical attitude have kind of gone hand in hand. And it was really only a Catholic issue for a long period of time. And then evangelicals picked it up in conjunction with political changes. So this idea that religious views have remained consistent on this issue since, you know, Jesus to today is a bit of a myth. And that is, you know, the religious is also political. And that's, I think, something that particularly at Key Stage 3 with disciplinary knowledge in RE is is becoming more to the fore, is where do religious ideas come from? Because they're not static and they're not, you know, necessarily all coming down from the divine. They are intertwined with their political setting. So looking at how the views of abortion have changed, and I think, was it Augustine considered it a sexual sin rather than a, a human moral sin? Um, so, you know, the, the religious views have often changed with political circumstances as well. So it's important dimension to bring in. Beth, why don't you come in? And I've got a question I want to ask the, the three of you. Yeah, no, amazing what we've done. We've got this kind of like personhood covered, individual rights or rights versus other people's rights and then individual good versus the common good. But something that was just coming to mind there is that we talk about the importance of the political aspect of teaching abortion, but we should also be really mindful of the psychological aspect of teaching abortion because the material on abortion stigma and the stigma surrounding it and the implications of that are really, really important. And um, I think as well as... We have got that responsibility, I think, to think about those um, those issues and um, and flesh that out um, in with some of the mental health concerns. I think we we should be drawing into our teaching. So just really mindful of that. Whenever you make these demarcations in philosophy, there are people that get marginalised, and and part of that marginalisation has come from that the stigmatisation of of abortion. So I just think that would be another really important thing to bring in, linked to the political, but also the psychological and. Yeah, thanks, Beth. That's a good reminder. And so to any students who's listening to this, and perhaps they've been assigned it by a teacher in the class, um, if you're listening to things either on abortion or euthanasia or anything else, uh, then obviously, and you're a bit worried, then obviously go and talk to a teacher or someone else at, at, at the school. Can I ask uh, the three of you uh, questions about two words that I don't think we've used so far, but I think I just want to talk about them because they're very important in in the abortion debate as it's taken place within philosophy and that's um, viability and potentiality um and i think you so all so for, for the record all three of them are nodding um so they kind of know what i'm going to ask so does someone want to explain uh what viability is first of all and the importance in this debate and then we'll do potentiality well, I'm happy to talk about viability because I sort of brought in this idea of dependency earlier on. And in a way, viability is the solution to this demarcation, which says when the fetus is viable is when it can sort of exist outside of the womb in some way. So it can be brought to term um, without necessarily having to be gestating inside the, the, the human who is giving birth to it. So what that means for abortion is is there's a point that says at this point then this fetus is no longer necessarily dependent anymore and so it's viable by itself it's still though not born yet so it might still be 
inside the womb of the uh, childbearing person. And so there's a problem there of back to that question of dependability or uh, if, if you say, well, this is dependent on this person. I use this word parasitic, which I did intentionally, by the way, because it's one of those words that you wouldn't use about a person, but you would use maybe about a non-person. And our reactions to it might be morally uh, you know, intuitive to some of our thoughts about it. But if it's no longer dependent on the mother and it could survive outside of the mother, then does the mother then have the right to say, well, it's my body and I want to terminate this uh, pregnancy? Or should actually it's now it's its own independent autonomous viable living person that 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 should be able to be delivered in some way regardless of whether the the mother wants to finish the uh, actual pregnancy so that would be viability and how it sort of comes in as a solution which is problematic because it's completely affected by medical science so if that is the important point where we say this is when life begins and this is when something's a person well, that changes every couple of years when new technology comes in and says, well, now we, we managed to deliver a, a fetus that survived from 20 weeks. So we managed to su- deliver one that survived at 19 weeks. And does that mean that within that period, that week, any any creature that was okay to kill beforehand, it wasn't okay now because technology's moved on and we should feel bad for all the things that were killed before that, before we were able to do it. So it's it's a real problem if that's when life begins because it's completely arbitrary and dependent on technological advances that are, you know, not seemingly the basis for morality. Oh, great. Thanks. Michael, Beth, any thoughts about uh, viability? Yeah, just to come in on the back of that, I suppose it's, it's more than just medical advancement. It's often geographic inequality as well. Like if you are down in Cornwall, for example, in the UK and you're living in a rural area, viability, if you go into pregnancy, uh, sorry, labour early, your child will have a, a much lower chance of viability outside of your body than if you are in central London and within 10 minutes of a hospital. So it, it's, again, mixed up in the political and the economic as well, rather than just the scientific. And that makes it a really tricky issue. Yeah, when, when I um, haven't lectured on this for a while, when I used to lecture at university level, I used to have a page on the on PowerPoint of the various stats of different countries, so not, not even just uh, counties uh, within the UK, but different countries, and they were some astonishing differences to get people thinking about this particular point that Dan just raised about viability and scientific medical dependency. Yeah, Beth? Yeah, and I suppose just something to add in that, I mean, we had the brilliant Fiona Woolard in a a previous podcast, but Fiona writes about um, the epistemically transformative experience of pregnancy and how that is quite a remarkable, that gives you a remarkable experience or type of knowledge of pregnancy. And one of the problems with abortion is that we can, again, we can abstract it as some kind of conceptual debate discussion and forget that this is... um, also part of the uh, discussions about pregnancy and so just just to add really that for the for someone who's been pregnant and um, for myself and for someone who I had a, a son who was born um, two months early uh, it really does rather transform the debate for you really in that it, again we can we can talk about it in abstract terms but there's also this kind of um, lived experience that is is really uh, worth thinking about. And um, all I really wanted to add was that that has rather changed my own 
position, I suppose. Um, and Fiona would talk about that in terms of these, yeah, the, the experience of being pregnant, but also just to remember that abortion is linked to those questions about sex and relationships and pregnancy and motherhood and parenthood. And I think, yeah, all of these sort of themes need to be drawn in together, really, to make full sense of them and to get at the kind of the truth here of what's right for us morally. And then just that other word that I mentioned a, a little while ago, does someone want to explain what potentiality means and how it's important in this in this discussion? Yeah, I'm happy to do that because I think that ties in quite considerably, doesn't it, with personhood in that it's all very well talking about these particular capacities or qualities that a being or an entity has to have in order to have um, moral status or moral protection. But obviously the reality of this is that it might not be that it's fully realised in that you don't suddenly just become rational or you don't suddenly just become... Um, conscious. This is a kind of process. And what we need to remember is that some of these capacities are potentialities. They're things that you will become, and there will be this process of development. So it's important to think about maybe not just um, the personhood or personhood characteristics in terms of, right, I've got them, and they're fixed, but in terms of the potential of what the zygote, the fetus will become. And I think this is really relevant for the end sort of end of life ethics as well, which we'll get onto in that... Mm -hmm. The, when you lose something, that's also something to think about. So there's our potentials and there's there's a loss of something and whether that makes you any less of something. Cora Diamond writes about this and really brilliantly in that there's both our potentials and then there's our loss. And it's whether we want to have these kind of fixed markers or whether we see it more in terms of our yeah potential and the great loss that comes when we lose some of those capacities and qualities. In the last uh, podcast I heard uh, on this series on sex and relationships, someone said we need to talk more about masturbation. So I think one of the problems with potentiality is when we start with this first, you know, fertilized egg and someone says conception, there you go, it is a potential person, it's really important. There's this problem of, of regress where you go, well, at what point is something a potential person or not a potential person? And so is a sperm a potential person because it could fertilise an egg? Is an egg a potential person because it could be fertilised? So that means every time a woman has a period and loses an egg or every time uh, a man is masturbating and ejaculates many, many potential persons, um, should we be you know, having little funerals and, and mourning for the, for the deaths of all these potential people? And the, the absurdity of that idea possibly speaks to the, the potential absurdity that just because it's reached a further stage of potentiality by that initial conception that leads to that initial moment of fertilisation, is that any really different from how it was a few seconds before? And if instead it had been someone masturbating or a period, would that have been worth mourning? Would that have been something that a great moral wrong is done to be disposing of? And I think that's the, the, the issue of potentiality is, is just like we go, when do you become a person in, in the sort of forward-looking area? You've also got that question of when do we not, not care about potential? At what point do we should we start caring about potential? And is that really the best place to put that is when it becomes a person in, rather than potential person because potential is so improbable? I mean, even in pregnancy, you've got all of the sperm that didn't become persons that had the potential to so actually should every child because you know it's one in a million or whatever be something that we look at as a sad figure of tragedy because of all the deaths that led to their being born and not all their potential million siblings and i think because we don't we know that there's something problematic about potentiality 
as the basis. And I'd also say with potentiality, a lot of the abortion discussion is about a counterfactual idea of a potential life that isn't lived and imagining, oh, we've lost something important from the world because that potential child didn't live. And it's worth remembering as we think about the ethics of it, you know, how many people are born and die or how many people are born and don't have great lives or or how many people are born and have lots of suffering or whatever. And we don't know what it is like for the the, the being that wasn't born, the, 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 the child that was aborted to have lived. And any argument that's based on talking about how their life would have been, uh, which some of the arguments are that you know you're denying this person a chance to life, um, is sort of I think ignoring something important that there you know we can't know how their life would have been, and also until we're born we don't care about our lives in the way that people who are born do care about their lives. Um, so there's an argument that you know if I if I myself if my parents had an abortion and I hadn't been born. I wouldn't be sad about it. And I think I've done lots of great things in the world. There's people who know me, you know, people who love me, who would miss me, but they wouldn't because I would never have been born and it would never have been an issue. And I wouldn't know about it. They wouldn't know about it. My parents would know about it. But if they had a reason for having that abortion, it would be a good thing. They wouldn't mourn it. They'd, they'd say, well, I'm glad we made that choice. So I think potentiality is also worth thinking about in terms of those conversations about the potential life that's being denied by getting an abortion and the question of, well, can we really make ethical decisions on fantasy uh, that, that is, you know, not, not real real things, but just imagined futures? Great. Thanks, Dan. Listen, I'm going to draw things to a close there for, for this segment, but just to, to draw things together and to help the students. So we, we started actually by thinking about personhood. And it's really important to keep that in mind because we're going to carry that on into the next segment, all being well, when we think about euthanasia but it's it just to summarize i think I'll, I'll catch all of them but i may not do so we might have a, a collection of various criteria which might be biological that might be defining of a, of a person perhaps something psychological perhaps something around rationality something around how what the social connections might be of of particular people and all of those will then give us some sense Perhaps they, perhaps they might be in tension, actually, with one another. But through through thinking through those, we might get a sense of what a moral status might be, which might then link to a legal status. And I think I think it was Dan who mentioned it, but we all were, were, were nodding. Where kind of if you've got a law, then you've got to actually have a law that's got to say, and this is the point, right? Because you can't just have everyone doing anything, right? It's got to actually make a make a a claim about you know where are we going to go and that might be have some flexibility or it might be very very stark and have a certain number of weeks that are determined or perhaps in in further guidance for the medical profession and then there are these two important ideas about viability and then potentiality that we've just talked about and then layered on top of all this is not just a moral issue that we have to be sensitive about at all times because there's different people involved individuals and uh, you know and and real people but actually the political the politics around it as well. Um, so there's lots going on um, with with uh, the ethics of abortion. But I think we're going to leave things there, uh, and then we'll see you in the next part when we pick up some of these issues when we think about the end of life. And welcome back. Uh, before we start this second segment proper as always a quick reminder if you look at my personal website uh, simon kirchin k i r 
C-H-I-N. Uh, across the top, you'll see some tabs. One of the tabs says Pod Schools. And I normally keep that up to date with a list of the episodes that are coming up for recording. Um, have a look. And if there's anything you have some questions or comments about, please send me an email. Uh, we'd love to use questions and comments from you in recordings. If you uh, are listening to something uh, that's already been recorded, if you've still got some questions about it, still email in to me um, because I'm planning on having a few Q&A uh, episodes just on various topics where I'll get some teachers back in the room and we'll just fire questions at them, which I'm sure Michael and Dan and Beth would only be too happy to take part in. Uh, they're all smiling. Look at that. Obviously they, they, they would be. Okay, so we've thought about one very tricky and difficult ethical issue in the first segment, abortion. Um, and we're going to go on and think about another tricky and difficult ethical issue in the second segment and think about euthanasia. In order to build up to that, we thought it might be useful um, just to think for a little while about a crucial distinction that's often used in uh, moral philosophy, and that's the distinction between killing and letting die. Beth, do you want to introduce this distinction for us, please? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and this links really uh, well to our ethical theories as well, because we're thinking about the primacy to motives or consequences. So we're asking the question, is killing someone who's in the process of dying morally the same as allowing them to die? So in other words, it's all about how euthanasia is to be defined. Are we defining it by the consequences of the act or the omission or by the intention of the doctor? So um, lots of us will give illustrations in our classrooms. So we might give the illustration of, right, there's an elderly patient, they're in some pain, they've got a few weeks to live. And then there's this idea of it's normal medical practice to give morphine to control the pain. Um, and then these morphine injections may sometimes shorten the patient's life. So we're asking, is there any moral difference between allowing the elderly patient to die without pain over a period of, say, two weeks and giving the patient a lethal injection, which will kill them tonight. So in giving the morphine, the doctor does not act to kill, but to care for the patient while acknowledging that the patient is dying. So in giving a lethal injection, the doctor has quite a different motive to kill the patient. So is the different motive morally significant, or should the morality of the situation be judged only by the consequences, since either way, the patient dies? So some philosophers argue that in such a situation, it's far more honest to give a lethal injection since the result is the same, the patient dies. So for James Rachels, lots of um, teachers will use this uh, distinction. James Rachels says there is no distinction between allowing a patient to die naturally and actively terminating their life. It's just what is described as a descriptive or a description difference. So, and they, we just resist the action of killing such people because I suppose you could say we're squeamish or something. So, um, but other philosophers would argue that it's, um, it's not the consequence of our actions which define their moral quality, but the motive behind them. So if you accidentally kill someone, this is known as what? Manslaughter, not murder. And that's a crucial legal distinction which identifies um, intention and not consequence as the morally significant practice. Great, that's really helpful, Beth. Thanks very much. Uh, Michael, Dan, do you want to pick up on any of the of those thoughts from Beth? Sort of connecting the the, the personhood idea, I guess, back to uh, from from killing and letting die, and why euthanasia is one of those things. And, and I guess linking to a theme we talked about with abortion is that idea of dependency again. 
because with the killing and letting die in this scenario, the important point is that the, the person who will die, the, the elderly patient um, that Beth described, is someone who you might say, well, if they want to die, why not kill themselves, right? So they, they can do that. And the big issue here is the ethics for not the person whose life it is, but for this doctor who has to decide whether they are going to be ending this person's life. And in the case of most sort of euthanasia cases that we give, this dependency is the whole point, because if they're not dependent on a doctor doing it for them, or a relative or a kind stranger who's going to put them out of their misery, we have basically suicide, which is a, a different question. It's a question of whether you as a person have the right to end your own life. What makes euthanasia so sort of difficult and, and, and complicated is it's asking someone else to end your life. And that's when this killing and letting die distinction, and as sort of Rachel's described, that, that may be sort of sense of ickiness that's not really an important distinction in, in reality, but just might feel psychologically like one, actually might have some importance. Because if I'm the doctor, and I feel that there is an important difference between actively giving you uh, a lethal injection and just switching off uh, a life support machine or, or denying you medication or whatever. I'm the one who has to do it. So I, can't, I kind of need to be comfortable morally with what I'm doing um, as much as the, the patient wanting to die. And so there is an important thing there of you go, well, how, how much should we care about, just like we talked about the mother's psychology in the case of abortion, how much do we need to worry about the psychology of the person administering the euthanasia? And does that therefore mean that although morally there might not be any difference between uh, killing someone actively and, and passively letting them die, um, that, that, that psychological difference in someone's head might make it important in this particular case because of the dependency issue yeah and, and just a, a thought from me and then i'll bring michael in in the case of doctors of course we're talking about professionals in the case of many doctors they might have had a whole career where they are first told not to do any harm and so there's a real professional issue for them and then of course then the legal issue um not just for doctors of course but but also for kind strangers um michael why don't you come in yeah, I think that was. It's interesting looking at the psychological perspective on that because I kind of, when I teach it, I role play three doctors and, and three different scenarios because I think that's a key difference when we talk about abortion to euthanasia. Is abortion, you have the development of a fetus, which for the vast majority is the same developmental process. So, you know, you might have factors out external to the person, but the development of that person is broadly similar. Whereas with the euthanasia, you might come across a person with various different needs, various different stages, various different motivations. So I always role play a doctor and I go, well, if this is someone who is in a permanent vegetative state, got no consciousness, a doctor walks into that room, assesses the situation and then has to make a decision. If they're looking at someone with a terminal illness, they'll go, you know, good afternoon, Mavis, this is your situation. This is how long you've got. This is what we think. Um, this might be the best route to take. And if it's someone with a, say, severe disability, you have to kind of have a conversation where you go, well, you can carry on tomorrow. You can carry on in. I could have this conversation with you in a year's time. And it's interesting to see how that changes a student's reaction when I role play those kind of three conversations, because the psychological ick factor is very different when it's someone you know is not going to live past next week compared to someone you could, in theory, have that conversation within three years' time. It's a very different scenario. And I think it's important to kind of put your, put yourself in the position of a doctor and see how far that takes you in terms of 
are you is that just a prejudice you hold is it just an ick factor that you have or is there something grounding that ick factor in something objective or or well, maybe objective, but something significant, morally significant, I suppose. That's really helpful, Michael, to think, because we're thinking about lots of individuals with lots of different life circumstances where be it, it's someone in the medical professional kind, strangers are, are being asked to intervene or potentially intervene. Can I um, then move us on to actually to take some of, you know, perhaps Michael's examples he's just given us or for students to think about lots of different examples in relation to this and just link what we were saying about abortion and potentiality then thinking to what's happening at end or near end of life because there we're not thinking about potentiality we're thinking about i think beth mentioned it in the in the previous segment thinking about a loss a loss of capacities or a loss of um qualities or or whatever it might be and 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 some of michael's examples illustrate illustrate those and i'm just wondering is it just purely symmetrical or is there something asymmetrical here? So we've lost some things, but and we and you know the, the argument was given earlier on. Perhaps potentiality is not all as it might seem to be. But is it the case that if someone has been a certain thing, even though they've lost some capacity or lost some part of their personality or whatever it might, or, or lost some ability, they're still considered to be a person that still has the same sort of moral status? So I suppose the broad question I'm asking is: Is euthanasia and abortion are they the same sort of issues or is there something different going on i'm just wondering what what the three of you think about that question but michael why don't you come in first yeah it was interesting i i um, had a philosopher talking about personhood recently and we asked a question came up in the q a about anything you've changed your mind about and he wrote a book about the self at the start of his career and he said when he wrote a book about world philosophy he did change his perspective because he saw his selfhood tied up in relationships in his community, in his friendships, in his history. Um, and it wasn't just kind of self-contained within himself. And I think that's something interesting to think about with uh, euthanasia in particular, is that you are, you're making a decision about someone who's had those relationships. And external to that person, you have people with a, a stronger connection. Because as Dan said earlier about the abortion um, situation, is they haven't got a relationship with Dan. Dan doesn't exist. And if Dan doesn't exist in the future there's nothing lost whereas there is something external to that person is being lost in terms of relationships but I suppose it is it's in terms of losing capacity and and how that affects personhood I guess it's not drawing on my own experience too much but uh, at what point does a person not become a person because there is still there is still something there about that person and it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly when that person ceases to be a person because it isn't just as simple as it's contained in that person, it's contained in how we relate to that person as well. Nice thoughts. Uh, Beth? Yeah, following on from that, I think it's really important to make this uh, interesting distinction that some philosophers have talked about between the moral agent and the moral patient. Now, I'm really not um, supportive of this sort of possibly quite troubling distinction in philosophy where you've got these kind of really rational, active agents and these kind of passive beings. That could be really problematic and dangerous and we could have an us and them culture. But it is worth remembering that there is there are periods in our life where we have the responsibility to be the more active, rational agents and to to care for others. And as Dan talked about dependencies earlier, we are we are beings in relation and therefore there is um you know, a lot of our sense of self or personhood comes from those relationships, not just as 
good instrumental things, but it kind of makes us who we are. And therefore, there will be large periods of our life where we have to sort of bear in mind that agent-patient dichotomy and in a non-problematic way, but just be aware that that's, that's um, a powerful part of how we, we are that kind of relational aspect and that sense of we've got a responsibility to uh, look after people. And um, and we could look at this from all the different ethical theories because they'd all have a different take on this in terms of what that relationship might look like. But I, th- I think it's it's worth bearing that distinction in mind in, in the non-problematic sense, I, not in the sense of them being sort of passive, but in the sense that there will be the opportunity for agents to... Um, to grow through those relationships and to to take on levels of relational responsibility for those people who are unfortunately pushed to the boundaries because of the way personhood has been been described or being concept um, conceived. Great, thanks, uh, Dan. I think there's a few things going around my head here. One is this idea of different cases, like you mentioned. Um, we started with a terminal patient who is it's a few weeks here or there. Do we do we end their life a bit earlier? We're talking about loss. We're saying that there are also some patients who have have just lost some aspect, maybe mobility, maybe you know that they've been in a terrible accident and they're they, they're completely paralysed now and can't live the sort of life that they they used to imagine themselves having, and they feel they want to be euthanised because they don't see life as having uh, a purpose anymore, and they need a doctor to do it because they can't they can't do it themselves. Versus those people who are already on their way to dying and it's that question of well should they die this week or should they die in three weeks time and i think one of the things that's really being lost here is this idea of autonomy whether you conceive of a self that's completely distinct and independent and should have total personal freedom or a very embedded and situated self that's connected in relationships that we've been talking about what's definitely true in the situation with the paraplegic patient who just wants to die but can't kill themselves is that if they wanted to die for any other reason and were able-bodied, they would be able to do it. And the question of whether we should be able to stop someone from, from taking their own life when they're fit and able to do it is a difficult one because people do and people find ways and people kill themselves all the time. So in a way, if we can do that when we're able-bodied and fit and healthy, there is a question of should we, in terms of those connectedness and, and the idea of being sort of an agent for someone else, should we allow them the autonomy of doing the thing that they can't physically do by helping them do the thing that they can't do because of their situation? Um, because that is their right as a, as a person to choose when to end their life. And one of those big issues of personhood is, you know, do we get to choose when to end our life? Because most of us don't, but most of us kind of have an idea of maybe how we'd like to die and it doesn't involve lots of pain and suffering. And we seem to accept that. Certainly in this terminal case, we we're like, well, we shouldn't let this person suffer for a long time because we wouldn't want to die like that. And if we accept that thought, shouldn't we also accept the thought of, well, I just don't want to live if I can't walk anymore, or if I can't play football anymore, or you know, if I can't speak to my family anymore, if I've got locked in syndrome and I, I can't have a relationship with my family, I can't do the things that gave my life meaning, I can't read anymore, whatever it is. If we accept we don't want a life with suffering and we should help someone along, we should probably, you know, help someone along in the other way to give them the autonomy we would give any other able-bodied and able-minded person to just do it themselves. And it's also worthwhile bringing persons into it just to remember animals here as well, because the the rationale for doing euthanasia on animals we do all the time, and we quite clearly think it's 
it's kinder to to kill them actively than to let them die you know and not just because they're dying we 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 kill animals all the time to put them out of their misery when when they're suffering in some way or when they don't have the quality of life that they would have normally have had you know they're getting a bit old and they can't do this and they don't seem to be enjoying their life so much anymore a vet might say you know, have you considered putting them down? We'd never think of saying that in, you know, you go to your GPs for a checkup and they go, oh, well, you don't seem as spry as you used to. And they sort of tell someone you might think about putting them down. But, you know, why we don't think the same shows maybe there's different levels of personhood there. But if we're okay with it with some types of persons, maybe back to the ick factor, maybe there's a another reason that we're more hesitant with humans, which is more to do with, our own sort of, oh, I don't like the idea of a doctor killing me or something like that, as opposed to, well, actually, if I wanted to kill myself, I would want to be able to do it. And uh, I've not been in the situation where I've needed someone else to do it for me. Great, thanks. Uh, so I think Michael and Beth both want to come in. Michael, why don't you go first? I suppose just to give the flip side of that conversation, I think when you talk about someone who has a, a physical, or is physically incapable of ending their own life and whether they should therefore have the right, I suppose... Another perspective on that is, are we sure that we've given them access to all their range of rights in life, I suppose? And I think it's tied up, again, with the political situation is a a lot of uh, disability rights campaigners might argue that the life of a disabled person in Britain is inferior because of political decisions about benefits and about accessibility to employment and all those sorts of things. And therefore, you can't really say we're going to give you the right to die before you've given them the right to fully live their life and fulfil their potential in life. And I think that's an important conversation. And I think it's one that, you know, we talk about, I spoke about someone else changing their mind earlier, but it's it's something that the more I've talked it, the more I've kind of questioned prejudices and assumptions and and all those sorts of things. And it's an important one to have. And I suppose that links with the animal rights one as well in that, yes, we do allow animals to die, but then they don't have a national health service. So sometimes it's because the animal care is often inferior. And ultimately, there could be other options for those animals. And and it becomes a financial decision for lots of people rather than an ethical one. You know, when I take my cat who is 16, and it's £5,000 that I have to shell out, it becomes a financial decision rather than purely an ethical, compassionate one. Um, And I don't want it to be, but ultimately, that does feed into that conversation. And I think that's it's something to bear in mind when you have this conversation i think yeah i i, I remember those scenes with with previous cats um beth yeah just something that was going through my mind was obviously a distinction we'd be making with our students would be this distinction between um quality of life and sanctity of life and we'd probably be talking to them a little bit about how peter singer and others have talked about how this um the sanctity of life position has really stifled and stopped progress within medical ethics. And pro- And I think it's just um, worth just making that distinction in that, you know, Peter Singer's arguing that the presumption that humans are somehow special is based on a very dated worldview in Genesis and speciesism. But it is also really important to put forward the, um, the theological position and the sanctity of life position that says, you know, it's not it's not your life. And also, um, even if you lack certain capacities, and this is what Michael was just saying, and Dan was drawing on, that there is still great value to be had. There is still great value in that life. And also, we haven't necessarily got onto this, but we've touched upon it, is that the role of suffering 
is obviously very, very different for the utilitarian as opposed to the, someone coming at it from a theological position. Position, and so that's something that we might also want to draw on with our students. In that we've been, done, we maybe have done the problem of evil with them, and yeah, there's just suffering is very, very different in those two positions. There's great spiritual resources to be drawn upon in those potentially final days, months of suffering for the religious person that might not be seen as valuable for someone coming at it from a, say, secular utilitarian perspective. Yeah, just to then follow on from that, Beth, just that, that issue, well, in fact, those two issues, but just thinking about sanctity of, of life. I mean, does this come up with, with many of your students about, I mean, obviously, if you're teaching religious studies, then then the kind of the, the specification kind of says, we, you know, we have to be thinking about this. But, but then if you're doing AQA philosophy, then there isn't that a lot of the, 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 the religious positions are, are there. I'm just, I'm just wondering how, how students respond and whether they can think of, as it were, a secular version of the sanctity of life. As it were. I suppose that, that's the question I really want to ask. Uh, Beth? Yeah, it's a huge part of GCSE. I mean, if you're going to come at medical ethics from religious, a religious studies perspective there, you would definitely set up the sanctity versus quality of life distinction. I think there is a, a secular alternative in terms of a sort of inherent uh, dignity of human beings that might come from a sort of a the, the great rationality. But um, yeah, I think there is a lot of support actually for the sanctity of life, life position. And as I just brought it up, this sense of all lives having value and lives not being pushed to the boundaries and some lives, you know, because lives, this whole personhood debate is showing that there are some people that are in and some people that are out and there are really dangerous marginalizations that come from that kind of those conceptions. And therefore, I think a lot of students can see that and I think they can see it from the theological perspective, but also, yeah, from a more from a more secular perspective that goes, yeah, those marginalizations are really, really problematic. And we are in a really dangerous game here of saying some lives matter more than others and some capacities are kind of like gold stamps of personhood. And I think we've got a, a brilliant generation of young people going, you know what, I want a mixed moral community with animals and I'm worried about the environment and I want to give a bit of moral status to some things beyond human beings. So yeah, I think this kind of, we're, we're into value talk here now, aren't we, about what we value and why and this kind of danger of pushing some things to the boundaries and to the, Mary Mitchie talks about this outer darkness for some for some people and some entities. And I think, yeah, we've got a lot of support for that, whether it's theological or from a different kind of secular perspective. Uh, yeah, Michael? Yeah, so um, I teach the OCR spec and I think the, the one criticism I've got of euthanasia on the OCR spec is you only have to apply situation ethics and natural law. So it's like there's no secular conversation really about sanctity of life. Whereas if you apply, say, Kantian ethics or rule utilitarianism, you could make a pragmatic case with rule utilitarianism for sanctity of life. Would a society function better if we had a, an absolute value on human life? And is that a rule that we should stick to? And the same with Kantian ethics, you know, can we universalise the taking of human life? And it's a shame we don't have to do those. But I think for students listening, it's worth considering those because you can make a secular case for saying from a pragmatic point of view that taboo about taking life if you then break that taboo do you end up in that kind of slippery slope to, to like you said does it become an economic decision does it become a uh, one about prejudices does it become one about other things other than the purely ethical considerations of personhood so yeah it's, it's a shame they don't do it but I think you can make that case definitely yeah I was going to say that the um the idea that, that Beth and Michael have both been talking about with a secular 
sanctity of life is what I think the big distinction is, is from a religious point of view, it is sacred just because it's life, because God gave it and God had a reason and that we don't mess with that. But with all the secular attempts, there's going, there's going to be some rationale behind it. And Beth said, maybe it's rationality is where we come from. And that means there's some sort of argument that is made as to why life is valuable, not sacred, but valuable. And in most cases, that therefore means there's a criteria that makes life valuable, which has to be met or not met, which brings us back to personhood and in and out groups, or that, that choice of, well, I don't think I'm going to be in that area anymore where my life is is worth living or is valuable so can you you know euthanize me or i don't think this baby's life is going to be in that category so is it okay to have an abortion or or, or my life would not be valuable in that way if i gave birth to this child whatever it is those secular attempts at having a sanctity of life start to then create a conversation around well what is it about life they're actually valuing it's not just life you know life is breathing etc brain activity personhood gives that life this extra thing that says that's special but once you've defined that if you've done it on a rational basis because again from the religious point of view personhood means you've got a soul what does that mean well god made you so it's back to life is just sacred because god made it but when you've got a what is personhood rational basis as soon as you don't meet that criteria anymore then the moral argument to say your life is important in the same way or shouldn't be ended um starts to go so i think there is a secular case to be made but that is why we have the acceptance of of forms of euthanasia um, or abortion in in laws in pluralistic societies because you can't really find a rational way that says all life is all sacred forever and you can never take a life because i think even the pragmatic argument you have to already subscribe to something like Kantian or utilitarian ethics, which has its own independent set of arguments, which not everyone subscribes to anyway. So even on a pragmatic basis of slippery slope, we're back to counterfactuals and thinking about, well, what would happen if we let this? Well, this would happen and then we'd be killing everyone. And you can quite easily go, but what if we didn't kill everyone? What if we just killed these people or let these people die in these particular situations? So I I think actually having a secular sanctity of life is not, very viable to use that word because you end up ending up actually with some sort of criteria that that will or won't be met yeah so just a summary from me i uh, started this segment by saying abortion and euthanasia were both difficult and tricky and complicated issues to to think our way through and i think we've shown that in the second segment around euthanasia because i mean just just to carry on the story from how dan left it just there i mean in the end you've still got to have a law And the law has to be either very tightly worded or allow for flexibility, which itself, you know, both of those can be problematic because there are always going to be cases which either are allowed in and why are they allowed in or they're just not allowed in, in which case, you know, intuitively you might want to allow them in. And wherever we draw a line, and in the case of the UK at the moment, euthanasia is not allowed, though it is allowed in some other countries in some circumstances, then one would hope both in the debate and in the legis- primary legislation, there'd be some indication of a, of a reason or a rationale, you know, a criterion or a range of criteria as to why euthanasia might be allowed. But, you know, as we've shown, there's, and with abortion, there's a range of possible criteria, all of which have uh, their pros and cons. And even just thinking this way has its pros and cons. So it's a very tricky issue to think through. And indeed, as we've just said, Uh, It's not just something that's done in the classroom. This has real-world consequences. 
So let's uh, leave things there and we'll see you in the third segment of something a little bit different. And welcome back. So I've just promised that we do something a little bit different in this third and final segment. So in the AQA uh, specification, it doesn't talk about abortion or euthanasia and its applied ethics topics. Instead, there's a line that talks about simulated killings and gives examples such as plays, films, video games. So we're going to think about this as an interesting set of philosophical issues and ethical issues in of itself and then depending on on how we're feeling we might well make be making some connections with abortion euthanasia and other topics so dan why don't you um introduce simulated killing and explain to us what topics come up when you're teaching it and then we'll, we'll take the discussion from there well yeah so simulated killing on the aqa spec is sort of something we think about with all of the various ethical theories that come up but I think the best way of doing it is as a topic by itself. And it, and it does link with all of the things we've been talking about today, because essentially we've been talking about personhood being this important ethical consideration of why it matters, what happens to an embryo, what happens to a person at the end of their life. And simulated killing comes along and says, well, does it matter if you're not actually killing something? It's definitely not a person because it's completely fictional. It's it's a made up simulation uh, of something. So it talks about things like uh, video games, you know, plays, films, TV, etc., where there's a simulation of a morally bad thing, in this case, killing, uh, happening. Is that morally problematic? So the way I like to frame it is think, as we've been doing in this podcast, ethics is full of loads of thought experiments, right? Where you are constantly imagining scenarios where people meet grisly ends and saying, is that okay? Is that not okay? So the James Rachel paper that we mentioned earlier has, you know, Smith and Jones drowning a six-year-old in a bathtub and things like that. And we ask students, you know, without any compunction to imagine drowning this six-year-old in the bathtub and we we bring in other people's versions of the same thought experiment where you know you sort of uh, slip and fall on the way and just are unconscious while this poor child drowns in front of you and we're imagining all these ideas um i believe michael said he, he gets his his students to pretend to be doctors making life and death situations simulating in the classroom you know the potential killing of a patient so we do this all the time in philosophy anyway imagining people dying in, in all these ways. And then there's the the non-philosophical stuff where we just do it for entertainment. So most of my students, talking to them, spend a lot of their free time on uh, video games that involve them killing many people. And in, in, in the modern day, compared to when I was a kid, killing people on computer games in very graphic um, and detailed ways, and very realistic ways as well. I mean, the um, the military are very deeply involved in video game development working with programmers to make sort of warfare scenarios very uh, realistic, strategically correct, uh, even sometimes the, the controls of a video game being connected to the actual controls in military vehicles and things like that, so that uh, if you've played the game enough, you'll be very good at actually firing a real tank gun or something like that. So there's students go home at night after they've had their philosophy lessons and they go and murder a bunch of people. And they actually do it. And this is like we've talked about active and passive euthanasia. You know, 
this is active simulated killing. They are choosing to, to murder people in the video game that they're playing because they press buttons to choose to kill them. And some of these games have these massive, you know, doomsday scenarios where it's uh, nuclear war. There's a video game I've got on my phone that a friend told me about about five years ago before COVID uh, called Plague, where you have to come up with a deadly virus and you're the most successful person is the person who creates a virus that kills the most people. So you sort of put all the components in of how it might transmit and all this stuff and you put the coordinates of where you're going to put it and see how it spreads through these various algorithms. And that's the game. So this friend told me about it. I did it, you know, left it going in my phone, get an alert saying, oh, you've you know killed 3 billion people, but that's not good enough because there's still 4 billion alive. And that's just something that we did of an evening over some drinks. So we're, we're doing this, our, our students are doing this on, on video games. But then there's the passive stuff. If I'm not playing video games, I might you know watch an episode of Breaking Bad where there's a bit of killing and I and I enjoy watching that. But even the passive stuff, has got active stuff in it because the actors obviously have to simulate the killing. They they do all these elaborate scenes where they pretend to kill. And if you're an actor in a play, for example, you might be simulating killing lots of people, depending on the play, um, you know, once a week and twice on Saturdays for a matinee. And, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly doing scenes where you're simulating the killing of people. And then there's the writers of these things who had to sit in a room and just sort of think, right, what's the best way to, to murder someone? What's the best way to torture someone? What's the best way to do all these terrible things? Sometimes, you know, murder mysteries, what's the best way to kill it and get away with it? How can I trick the police and all this stuff? Really elaborate murders that they're, they're simulating in their fiction. And then I sit and read it as a fan of, you know, crime fiction and, and spend my holiday on the beach imagining all these people being murdered. And the moral question there is, OK, no one's actually being killed. It's all completely simulated. There is no persons being damaged. But what is that doing to us in terms of our ethical lives? Is it creating a slippery slope, as we've talked about? Does it mean that if I spend four hours a day, every day, killing people on a video game, that if we did go to war, I'm more easy with the idea of killing people in war. Um, or not even in war, just if I'm on the street and someone looks at me in the wrong way. If I've been playing some games like uh, Grand Theft Auto, um, where you get points for just beating random people up on the street, you know, do I just randomly beat them up on the street? And some people look at increasing violence in society and you know talk about terrible things and say you know the youth of today are playing with these games and going out and getting involved in knife crime and stuff and is there a connection there because they're killing people in their in their free time in simulated contexts and then they go out into reality and and do it in real life but it's not as simple as that because one of the arguments there's a guy Miguel Sicart who talks about this problem um, and, and equates it to um, Hannah Arendt's banality of evil idea that essentially we now sit and it's very banal. We, we kill people de rigueur every day without even thinking about it. And, you know, this idea that that tots up to make us loose with our ethics and go around aborting and euthanizing people willy nilly because we don't care anymore about the sanctity of life or the value of life. But what Sakart sort of says is it doesn't have to be the case. And actually a lot of these, these games have the potential to rather than be desensitizing us ethically, give us opportunities to develop our ethical skills and hone our ethical skills. Because in a given situation where I have to decide, do I you know, do this deadly virus and kill everyone? Or do I drop a nuclear bomb on this innocent city? Um, I can decide not to do those things. And so in a way, I played that plague game um, 
once, I think it was, maybe twice, to see if I could, you know, kill four billion next time. And then I was like, this is awful. Why am I doing that? And that didn't make me go out and then, you know, when COVID came along, go and cough on everyone because I want to spread plague like in the game. It made me far more aware of the potential effects of a virus that can spread like that. And if I'm someone who's been killed multiple times in these games around war, and I've known those life and death decisions, in theory, if I am a soldier in an actual war, I've played out these scenes many times and thought about the ethical ramifications and have the potential to be a better moral agent because I've simulated it many times. So there's a tension between is it developing sort of the wrong traits or is it giving us an opportunity to do a bit of ethical calisthenics and exercise our moral intuitions in scenarios that are simulated, therefore safe, and allow us to make the wrong decision? So back to abortion, back to euthanasia, you could imagine a video game where you know, you've got various scenarios. We talked about all the multiple scenarios that you can have and how they're all different and very nuanced. So you can imagine a very complicated game with lots of people getting pregnant, needing end-of-life care, and you have to make decisions. You know, should, should they have an abortion? Should they um, be euthanized? And your decisions impact the gameplay but make you think about those things in a really important way, just like we do with a thought experiment. But linking to what Beth said earlier about the psychology in a far more visceral way, in a way that actually gives you that sense of being there because it's well simulated, especially with VR, you know, virtual reality, you can now literally be the doctor that Michael wants you to be in an actual hospital with an actual patient. Do you actually euthanize and see how that felt for the ick factor and get a sense of, was that the right thing to do? Was that the wrong thing to do from a really realistic point of view? That's not just a fantasy. So there's all these different levels of exploring the ideas maybe limiting what you do or don't do, or maybe exploring different ethical capabilities without the ethical consequences to make the real life decisions better when they actually come along because you've rehearsed. So in a nutshell, that's sort of introduction to the general idea. Um, and I'm sure people have got lots to say about their thoughts on it. That's great. Thanks very much, Dan, for a really great summary. Uh, Michael, Beth, what are your thoughts about that then? Well, happy to come in and, and link to our last um, section on euthanasia in that it's just really interesting, isn't it, to think about what potentially is is the problem or not here through the lenses of the ethical through the lenses of the ethical theories. Because obviously, um, for the utilitarian, whether it's simulated or not isn't necessarily important. It's about the question of the happiness that is generated by these activities. But there is this interesting question of, um, Dan talks about this, this sort of, um, there'll be data and there'll be empirical uh, data to draw on in terms of the long-term consequences of being involved in such activities, whether in an active or passive sense. I thought that distinction you made, Dan, is really important. But that'll be a really interesting approach for the utilitarian. Likewise, in the euthanasia debate, there'll be really important data there in terms of the long-term consequences for um, potentially legislating assisted suicide or euthanasia in countries where that has that has gone through. Um, and then I suppose linked to that is, you know, moving on to sort of like the Kantian or I was thinking a lot about the virtue ethics perspective on this in terms of like, how is it changing you back to personhood in terms of like, what is it, what is it doing to you and, and your character? And, and this is kind of like quite a live debate in my family because I've got relatively young children. I've got a child that's really 
not at the stage our pupils are at, but kind of really excited by things like Minecraft. And he's brilliant on Minecraft and he makes these beautiful worlds. And I'm very clear that, you know, you sort of, you you stay in creative mode. And we have this discussion and he says, well, what, you know, what's the problem with me, you know, going out of creative mode and going into a mode where I potentially could harm others and harm animals? And and I've I've said exactly what the virtue ethicist would say to my own son. I've said, but I think, you know, will it change you? Like, how do you feel about what that makes you as a character? Because you're someone that's telling me you want to be a vegetarian. You're someone who's telling me you don't want to, you love animals. You see animals as part of your moral community, going back to that idea. And then, you know, do you, not that it's right or wrong, but does that change you? Does that change your character? And, you know, to be really frank, am I prouder of you or do I see you as a more virtuous or growing virtuous little boy if you're kind of creating in the creative mode or if you're in a kind of more destructive mode? And it, it does it does change your perception of, of someone, I think. So I think that's just a really interesting question that's kind of live in my own life and the virtue ethicist would ask in this particular scenario in that, is it changing us? Does that kind of simulated killing change us as a person? Does it make us less virtuous? And I suppose, yeah, for the Kantian, it's about does it make us less rational and what does rationality demand of us in this situation? So I'm, I'm just really interested in that idea of how these kind of experiences and these activities sort of transform us really as, as agents and, and people. Thanks, Beth. Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is the first time I've heard of this, so I'll try and develop something coherent there's lots of thoughts swirling around my mind i'm not very good at coherent but i'll do my best um it's it's interesting how i suppose it's the ability to skew the world for one i suppose and and what it says about us as human beings because i was just as as you were saying that about how we use ideas in lessons i've often shown kind of films and there's lots of talking in some films and in my head i think oh they're switching off but i know there's a good bit of violence in a minute so they're going to be interested in that. And then I've caught myself and thought, oh, I'm watching a film about a genocide or I'm watching a film about, you know, a really hefty topic. And that is what's going in my mind. And it's what, what does that relationship tell us about us and how we relate to that? And, you know, often with films, oh, there's a lot of talking, but then it really gets going. And you think when you say it gets going, does it just get violent? That's essentially it. It's not drama. It's just violence. And I suppose, yeah, skewing and um, emotional manipulation as well, I often... I think that's an important thing as well, how they have the ability to manipulate people emotionally, particularly in films. One of the reasons, sorry for any people upset by this, but one of the reasons I don't like Marvel films is because I feel like death has no consequence in those films because they can just bring someone back randomly. And I'm like, why have I invested? Why do I care? I watched that Civil War film and they knocked each other sideways for two hours and 20 minutes. In the end, Don Cheadle couldn't walk and then they gave him a suit that came and he walk again. Right. And I thought, I've been here for two hours and 20 minutes and there's nothing. And, I, you know, someone dies in one film and then they've got a prequel coming out following up. Why do I care? I can look at their slate and I know they've got loads of films coming out in future with all these characters in it. Um, but, yeah, that emotional manipulation, I suppose it, it does have a, a link to the real world. I was, I was, I was reading something about people who carry out drone strikes and how that feels like a computer simulation and that detachment between reality and fiction is with virtual reality is becoming blurred and I think that's a really important conversation to have was that coherent enough I think I've said a lot but um there's lots to unpack isn't there 
It was, yeah. So just some two thoughts from me. In fact, I had also that that last thought that you had, Michael, with that example of drone strikes. I think there's something very interesting there about how modern warfare and modern war technology is distancing soldiers, because they are soldiers, distancing soldiers from the act of killing or maiming or destruction. Now, of course, we can then, you know, have arguments. In fact, we had all those debates in a different podcast about war and peace but you know if you think there's a just war and if you think it's carried out justly and la la la, etc etc then you've got to think that anyone involved in the military that they they should be kind of there in the field of battle as it were confronting an enemy and there's some sort of kind of connection between the two but in in i mean it's very hard to articulate but i hope everyone gets gets what i understand what i mean but that's that's the normal thought because that's what we've been so used to through the human history but now we've got drone strikes and they're taking it from from distance i mean not even the the kind of aged army general right way back from the front who's kind of moving counters around a board and there's the actual soldiers carry out the killing in real life but there's no one there who's who's got a close physical connection and that seems very strange michael do you want to come back in on, on that thought and i've got another one yeah it's just something that's occurred to me really about war i know we euthanasia and abortion are our primary uh, or our first topics but there's one way of looking at the development of war technology to say we've we've developed ways of killing more people but i think there's another way of looking at it and we've depersonalized that killing we've made it more distant so we had swords and you could look someone in the eye as you killed them and then you get guns and you could be miles away and then you could have a machine gun you do, and you don't even have to see the person. You can just drop a bomb. And I think that's an interesting kind of parallel. Um, and that's, yeah, people go, we learn to kill more people, but actually is it just that we've depersonalised it and made it easier? Yeah, yeah. And so there's an interesting thing here about simulated killing. Just to finish the thought and then I'll bring Dan in and then I've got another another uh, tangent to go down. In that... You know, we, we thought about simulated killing in terms of novels and plays and films and so on, but actually real-life killing has arguably become simulated killing. I mean, I suppose that's the thought. Dan, Dan what were you going to say? Well, that's sort of, to, to combine those two ideas, I think that is one of the answers made to this problem of, of is there a problem with simulated killing, is that real-life killing has become very simulated. And what has coincided with that is an increase in people playing video games that are violent, an increase in, you know, home video, television, more than just a couple of channels, lots of constant bombardment of fictional, you know, violent things. As uh, Michael said, sometimes, you know, we show the violent bits to students because we know they'll enjoy that. We all enjoy those. We've been trained that the Marvel movies um, that he doesn't like are so successful because they are often just filled with big fight scenes and people like fight scenes on the cinema or on their TV. And you can say, is that just a, it just happens to be the case that as that's been going on, we're also using that technology to depersonalize killing? Or is it evidence, as Beth was saying, is it empirical evidence of there might be some connection between what we're doing in our spare time and what's happening? Because even things like Minecraft, um, you know, my um, nephew and niece who are not in secondary school yet were playing that last weekend and they were very excited that on Sunday they were going to have a big battle with each other. They'd built worlds to try and destroy each other's areas and things. And they were basically talking about, you know, killing each other's armies against people within this game that they're playing. And they're already doing that. And, and most games, and this is what, what worries me, whether it's something like Fortnite, whether it's Call of Duty, whether it's Resident Evil, zombie games, whatever it is, nowadays seems to have a component of multiplayer online 
um, through headsets, like like you would if you're in the army talking to people, you know, on, on your comms. Planning warfare strategy on how to take some sort of area or achieve some sort of goal together, kill some sort of enemy, lay out traps, monitor your weapons and your ammunition and stuff like that. And the the general sort of pastime of many people who play games nowadays is war games, which used to be the thing that these generals did with their boards and their, you know, their their counters and things. Or then they did on very sophisticated computer programs that ran a sort of algorithm. But now everyone's running war games in their spare time and then going, well, we can do that. And then why not attach a drone to it and just do it in real life? And there is a massive body of, of literature growing on on the number of gamers who are in the military and sort of the military connection with video gaming and you know like i say military involvement in helping these games be accurate just like they're, they're involved in lots of films getting the the film stuff accurate so there seems to be a crossover that maybe means that the more we do see it in this fictional way the more easy we are with doing it and the more depersonalized it becomes in real life there is a sort of uh, a triangulation there, a strategy almost of making it far easier to 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 kill. Certainly, uh, in a in a military situation, because of that constant influx of this is what you do, this is how to do it. You know, we have a very skilled generation coming out of uh, potential you know soldiers who know how to plan skirmishes and protect themselves from counterattack, and they do this every night, every weekend, every holiday. Some of them spent most of lockdown doing it during the pandemic. And, you know, that whether that has an effect, we will see, but it certainly does seem it's having an effect in the way we kill in real life now. So here's a, a, a different thought. I don't know if it's a philosophical puzzle, but it's something else that was going through my head. So, I mean, we, I, I presume we've all had the experience of reading various novels and some novels we just read for entertainment and then we put them aside. But some novels, when you finish them, um, they kind of just leave a hole for a few days or a few weeks certainly I, I have that and and sometimes not always but sometimes that's because something particularly affecting has happened to one or two characters that you care about sometimes because because they die right and there the novelist has, has killed someone off i'm just putting that together with you know particularly about video games because video games often what's happening is you know players are, are creating their own worlds they're investing a lot of time and energy in creating characters they're taking the basic people and and um, creating them. And I'm just thinking that that's very different from, let's say, late 70s, early 80s, you know, Pac-Man eating ghosts and the ghosts die, or space invaders getting shot out of the sky. Because they, they, they're just, you know, you know, blips on a screen, right? They're nothing. They're just, that's all they are. I'm just thinking that, the, but they're both kind of deaths, right? That, you, know, the, you know, are we going to mourn? pac-man's ghosts uh or the space invaders no we're not right they're just blips on the screen whereas in in the case of very involved whole world video games that it does seem i mean if it's rational to mourn characters in a novel and sometimes it, it's it's not i mean obviously you're not literally mourning them but there's a there's a kind of fictional mourning and that's a perfectly human reaction it seems right to kind of in the same way mourn characters who die in a video game i'm just i'm just drawing attention to that i don't think it's i mean some people make a whole philosophical puzzle about it you know why should we mourn these fictional characters they don't really exist right why should we mourn sherlock holmes falling off the reichenbach falls but of course many people did when they the book came out or the story came out um i'm just thinking that's kind of just 
very interesting in terms of simulated killing. There's also our responses and this mourning response, which in some cases, you know, it would be crazy if you were trying to mourn Pac-Man and, and the ghosts, but doesn't seem as as crazy just to feel it affect you for a few days if a character in a video game you spent ages invested in then suddenly dies. Um, I was just wondering what, what people think about that and whether you discuss that, Dan, with, with your students. Oh, well, we do. We talk about the um, the, the trauma uh, quite a lot. There are some games where, weirdly, it's not the, the the killing, the simulated killing that you often mourn, but the the story around the gameplay. And kind of like what Michael was saying about movies is there's these long, heavy bits of conversation, and then it's all right. It's going to get to a battle scene or something. A lot of games are like this, where the justification is why why are we killing each other in this game is some very well-written storytelling. And sometimes there are characters, so you might have a battle where it unlocks a sequence where a main character that you've grown, kind of like a novelization or, or a television series, will die. And there have been characters in games who have had massive, you know, worldwide mourning for their their death, um, even though a fictional character, because it meant something important to, to the game or to the, um, the series of games in, in some cases. But I also talk about that whole idea of, of the psychological impact of simulation because I link it to the fact that in terms of the graphics, the violence and things that we see, there, there, are, there are very traumatic scenes um, in some of these games, things that you see, that if you saw it in real life, you know, you might have PTSD if you were a soldier. You might at least need therapy if you saw it on the street. And what I sort of talk about is this desensitization because, you know, unfortunately I ask, I ask students, you know, do have you seen any of this stuff in real life and not in real life, real life, but they've seen videos of real horrific things. You know, it's very easy on the internet to see beheading videos and things like that. And many of these students have seen that just as uh, people older than than, than, than like, like myself, you know, we watch things like 9-11 happen live on TV and you see this horrible tragedy and people jumping off buildings. And we talk about how um, we didn't get given any therapy for watching, you know, thousands of people die on live TV. They are killing thousands of people in these graphically simulated ways and just sort of accepting that's what you see. And then watching videos of stuff happening in real life, and there's very little difference. It's all on the same screen in some cases. You know, here's a real murder that I watched because someone passed around a video of something that happened in a park, and here's a video game, and that's just my Friday night. And the fact that there is sort of space for mourning or space for processing this and whether we process it as something real or whether there's a, a mixture of the real emotions for real events and simulated emotions for simulated events or lack of emotion for either event because everything becomes simulated and separate from us and not real. Um, and back to the sort of virtue ethics idea, one of the things we talk about a lot is, you know, there's a, there's a guy, uh, Matt McCormick, I think he's called, who talks about, you know, we don't know why simulated killing feels wrong but maybe virtue ethics tells us why because the more you inculcate this idea of this is just same old same old or someone dies and you don't need to mourn them because you know with a book you sort of choose to finish it you, you read it in your, at your own pace with a game i could be about to see that scene where someone dies and it's very impactful and then the computer crashes or i'm called for dinner or i you know just decide to pause it and i, I don't really spend time dwelling with it and that lack of, of time to process things and that conflation between the real and the simulated possibly leads to 
something not being developed that should be developed for the virtuous person, which is a sense of compassion, sense of empathy, sense of connectedness to your emotions and things like that. I can tell you some students have mourned for, for fictional characters, some students have not, and some students have not mourned for real things that they've seen, where they've just been sent a video by a friend, watched something absolutely horrific, and then got on with their day, you know, gone and gone out for dinner or something and not really thought about it ever again until their teacher says in a philosophy lesson, that's a bit messed up. Like, you know, how how have you not dwelt on that for, for longer? So yeah, I think it's a huge issue about the sort of the after effects of this and, and how it's dealt with and whether people are able to, to process properly what they're experiencing in, in real situations and simulated because of the constant conflation. Yeah, great. Listen, loads of interesting issues going on uh, then in that topic of simulated killing. Let's draw things to a close, though. So uh, we should thank uh, our three guests who've been with us in this episode talking about things. So thanks very much, Michael. Thanks for having me again. Thanks, Dan and uh, Beth, for a great conversation. Uh, And Dan, thanks to you. Thanks for having me too. And thanks to everyone else for uh, continuing to stimulate the ideas. And Beth, thanks to you also. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Uh, Great. Uh, So thanks to the three of you uh, again. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Gets Schooled. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you check out some of our other uh, episodes.